Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. FMC Fast Chat takes you inside the news so you can be in the know in 30 minutes. Hosted by Fair Media Council CEO and Executive Director Jackie Clement, Fast Chat features notables in news, media, and business. Go inside the news with this New York News forecast, which offers an insider's take of key people and issues you'll see in the news throughout the year. I'm Jackie Clement, CEO and Executive Director of the Fair Media Council, and this discussion was part of FMC's annual event, The News Conference, Real and Powerful. It features New York Post City Hall Bureau Chief Bernadette Hogan, Katie Honan, senior reporter for the city, and Dr. Lee Marengoff, who is the director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion at Marist College. Moderating is Tim Scheldt, the chair of the Radio Television Digital News Association and former news and programming director of WCBS News Radio 880. Take a listen as Tim begins the program. Thanks, Jackie. Good morning. I always love being involved in these events with the Fair Media Council, and uh, I was excited to be asked to do this, and um, I'm really excited that we have brought together a group of very talented and um, very smart people to have a conversation about what the expectations are for news in the New York region uh, in the coming year with the knowledge that things come out of nowhere and become news. So already it's only a couple of weeks into January and it feels like six months worth of news has happened. But uh, let me begin by introducing the panel. Uh, let me first introduce and say hello to Bernadette Hogan. She is the City Hall Bureau Chief for the New York Post. Before that, she served as the newspaper's Albany Bureau Chief and had a front row seat uh, for the pandemic rise and fall of Andrew Cuomo and the historic introduction that we all got to Kathy Hochul. Katie Honan, uh, I'm a big fan of her work. She is a senior reporter for the city, a digital news outlet that is not-for-profit, nonpartisan, and is focused on what I love, high-impact accountability reporting. If you don't know the city, run to it today and look at the work that they do, including Katie's, because it's, it's terrific. Katie is well-known in New York journalism circles, having previously worked for the Wall Street Journal, covering City Hall, where we see she is sitting in room nine today. And I, I love that, having worked in that in that area many, many years ago. She also worked for DNA Info, uh, covering Queens, which is, which is good. Uh, Dr. Lee Marengoff is a personal friend of mine for 30 years. And may I also note, Lee, that you are a uh, mentor and teacher of, uh, of, uh, of Bernadette. Bernadette went to Marist and I, I love that connection and, and that's that's an awesome thing. Lee this is, the first, is- the first time that has happened to me on a panel. That you brought a panel, I love that. Um, Lee is assistant professor of political science at Marist, but we all know him as the director of the well-regarded Marist College Institute for Public Opinion or the Marist Poll. Lee is a longtime political observer and commentator. You know who I am. Uh, why don't we get started? Let me start with you, Bernadette. I asked everybody in advance what what stories you think you're going to be focusing on in the in the coming year. What are the storylines that that you want to keep a watch on? Um, and uh, Bernadette, I know you've been watching closely um, the impact of the migrant crisis, which has really got a lot of tentacles in a lot in a lot of places. What do you expect in the coming year? I mean, we just had some news a couple of days ago with the the mayors of Chicago and New York reaching out to the governor of Colorado and finding some success in, in, in getting some of that uh, pushed back. Tell me about what you're looking for. Right, it's really quite extraordinary. I mean, according to City Hall's tally, there's been over 35,000 migrants from the Southern border that have come into New York City since the spring. And that number is growing by the week. Right now, New York City is already having a big issue with their homelessness crisis and how they are able to give shelter to these people. I mean, it, just besides the migrants from the, from the southern border, the 
regular, I suppose you could say, homelessness population is already an issue in the city, but now this just compounds it. There's over 25,000 of these individuals now in emergency hotels, mega hotels in major business districts like Midtown, Manhattan, and it's a huge mess. And it's something that is going to have financial impacts on the city's budget, not just this upcoming year, but for years to come. Um, and it's it's totally exploded. And it, it really is interesting because it takes a national problem and it's right at home in New York. Of course, we've been reading about crisis on the Southern border for years and years. Of course, it, it came to, it elevated during the Trump era with a COVID era policy designed to say, you know, listen, we don't want people from other countries coming in due to the pandemic, but it was also a way to curb immigration. And now President Joe Biden is also grappling with how to handle an influx of people coming from also, I mean, right now, countries that are having difficulty with conflict, democracy, et cetera, especially Venezuela. And so we're seeing people coming into the country and coming into New York City specifically, they don't speak the language, they don't have papers where they can work and um, you know, provide for their families and also contribute to society as they say they want to do, et cetera. So it's a real big mess. Mayor Adams has talked about it. Other politicians have talked about it. You know, And it, again, it's, it's going to have impacts for years to come. Does it, do you think, Bernadette, that it that it could have tentacles to the to the suburbs? Any of these people flowing out uh, into the island up in uh, uh, you know Westchester, Rockland? Right. No, that's a good question because actually a couple of months ago you had some people on the federal level level like uh, Senator Gillibrand saying, "Listen, we might need to start looking at housing for these people yeah. outside of New York City because." You know, what are we going to continue to do? Jam pack them into hotels where they can't cook, they can't, again, they can't find work. Um, we have heard that some individuals who have family members or, you know, some opportunity, some connection within New York, they might have moved to other towns or counties, et cetera. But those, that's been more few and far between. It's not as widely spread as, say, the city relocating. Right now, there's no active plan to relocate people from the city to upstate but it might come to that. The upstate cities like Utica, for example, have a history of accepting refugees from other countries and having populations there. But again, this is, you know, this is, this is something that is just, you know, it's, it's over six months going on and they're gonna have to have another solution soon than just putting people into hotels. Um, Katie, good morning to you. Hi. You know, you've covered City Hall and Queens for, for, for a long time in, in your career. I asked you one of the things that you were uh, to tell me a couple of things that you're looking at uh, this year. And, and the thing that stood out to me brings Queens and City Hall together. And that's the awarding of, uh, of gaming licenses yeah. to uh, three in New York City. Is that what it is? And my favorite baseball owner, Steve Cohen, is uh, getting involved. He had a meeting of, uh, of what is season ticket holders a couple of days ago when he was asking them about, um, you know, what they would like to see. What do you think is going to happen there? When is it this year that these licenses have to be awarded? And there's a lot of money attached to uh, to what it's going to take to get gaming in New York City. Where do you think it's going to play out this year? Well, I mean, since you brought it up, uh, I do want to talk briefly about that panel, that session that Steve Cohen hosted at City Field on Saturday. It was for the community. Um, many people were invited to join in, um, but the issue there, you know. Steve Cohen doesn't own the land that City Field sits on. It's technically a park. In order to build anything um, on the parking lot would require a state legislation for park alienation. Um, the the Wilpons, uh, previous owners of the Mets, who along with related companies, they're redeveloping parts of Worlds Point, which is across the street. It's separate to that. They had tried years ago to develop the parking lot in a mall called Worlds West. West it was struck down. So I think the likelihood of Steve Cohen building on the parking lot. I think he'd like his season ticket holders uh, to believe that it could happen, um, but it's a lot more difficult to develop on parkland than it is to say, I don't know, buy Carlos Correa or Justin Verlander to come to the Mets. So I think, um, you know, Saturday session, a lot of people who went to it said that it was a little bit misleading. Um, I saw some coverage of it that was incorrect, saying that it's Wells Point, that's something different. So there's a lot going on in that area. Um, 2,500 units of affordable housing coming across the street, which has nothing to do with Steve Cohen. Um, I know he, you know, maybe he sits in his office at City Field and he looks across um, at something that he wishes looked different, but he really has no control over it. Um, 
as for the gaming licenses, you know, there's a lot of people, there's talk about putting a casino in Times Square, there's a Coney Island bid, of course, there already is a casino in Queens at the Aqueduct Racetrack, it's a, I've never been, I think it, you don't have table games and stuff like that, so it's limited, it's not a full casino license, so, I th you know, I think to even have it, it's half a billion dollars, it's, it's very costly to do it, so that's why you see a lot of these um, bids from multiple groups of people, real estate developments, everyone kind of wants a piece of this. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe Steve Cohen can make a play for it, but in order for him to develop it on the parking lot, you know, which he said was uh, vacant asphalt, when in reality, his municipal bonds are actually tied to the parking lots. And I mean, if it was a vacant asphalt, couldn't I park there for free during the season? <laughs> I think, Tim, if you drive in, you have to pay pretty a lot of money to park in the city field parking lot. Um, so those are the issues there. And we'll see who gets the license and we'll see how that plays out. And, you know, I'm sure there, wherever it is, there, there may be community pushback um, because of all the things in New York City, what, what people might need, whether it's schools or housing, casinos may not be a priority for, for actual residents, not so much the developers. I'm sure they would like it. Lee, good morning to you. Um, from your position where you're sitting, um, there was really no red wave anywhere in America other than Long Island um, <laughs> in, uh, in, in the, the midterm election. But that was a pretty big deal, uh, what went on in Long Island. And obviously, it, we, if we talk about the third <laughs> congressional district, there's a lot of news that's still going to be had out of there. Uh, to talk to me about what you saw in November and what you think the impact in the coming year is. Well, I think that there's two kind of two pieces to that, and, and the first piece is the. Well, first of all, I, I want to congratulate you on your many years of service. Uh, you came to Marist College to watch a very young poll. Many decades, we had both had a lot more hair at that point, and uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't say you were a cub reporter, but you were sort of new, new in the new in the field, and we we certainly were. Uh, very very low tech in those days so it was, it was i do remember that it was a lot of fun um so congratulations Thank on you. your well deserved uh but uh i'm glad to see you're still you know on, on the forefront of doing doing things in the field because uh you, you ran such a quality shop over at wcbs and Thank so you. that was uh it's always fun to work with you in elections and stuff having said that um so so the you know the, this red wave didn't materialize i think there's some important point to be made for how um, polling has developed uh, that consumers of polls who are seeing the results of all these polls um, sort of need to be plugged in on uh, and particularly on some parts of how the sausage is being made and um, one of the things that went on this year was there was a tremendous uh, sense of this impending red wave you know which was going to have presumably even have impact in very blue new york which it did uh, I and mean, we had a governor's race which was far closer uh than uh than um you know we've had in a long time uh with lee zeldin and, and also in the suburbs and then in long island we've seen um and other parts of the suburbs hudson valley we saw uh major inroads uh, by the republican party in a, in a fairly unprecedented way, uh, uh, I guess Long Island reverted back to some of its uh, old and true partisan uh, tint. Um, uh, Hudson Valley, where two of two congressmen uh, uh, now are Republicans, uh, that that was a big piece of the national change. <laughs> Uh, right here, right here in Hudson Valley, or right as, as they say in the movie, right here in Kansas, but right here in, the, in Hudson Valley. Um, I want to say one thing, um, just initially in the discussion, and that is we saw, and there was a lot of confusion. Um, first of all, most people historically look for a uh, the party out of power to do very well uh, in the first midterm election for the new president. We're not, so in this case, obviously a Democrat with Joe Biden, the expectation was that the Republican Party could pick up between 20 or even more seats in the House. Uh, the average uh, number in the Senate uh, for a first term uh, president is to lose seven seats. Uh, that's hard to do these days because there aren't that many competitive seats, but uh, certainly, you know, three to five would have been something that wouldn't have shocked anybody. Um, but what we saw is the reports of the uh, impending mid, uh, red wave were, were really um, uh, over exaggerated um, by an influx of partisan polls. Um, and so if people, and I know consumers of 
political information and polling very often go to places like Real Clear Politics uh, and maybe the Cook Political Report or 538, places where polls are aggregated and um, but also, uh, you know, you look at them uh, like a baseball box score. There's a rolling right. average, and, and uh, everyone is not equal. And that's, that's right. a lesson uh, we learn, right? Exactly. And, and what they were doing is because it was a, a tremendous influx of polls, more by Republican groups than Democrat groups. But you saw it, for example, in the case of the New York governor's race, uh, which uh, Hochul won by, I believe, seven, seven points or thereabouts. Um, the uh, Trafalgar poll, which was a Republican-based poll, had that one dead even. Uh, and the Data for Progress poll, which is a Democratic-leaning poll, had Hochul ahead uh, by 12 points. Uh, right at the very same time, uh, those two, the two polls were conducted within a day of each other. So they were measuring the same thing, but with very different, uh, different lenses on. Um, and so, unfortunately, that fueled the, um, in, in states around the country, fueled the whole thesis of the impending uh, uh, red tsunami. The wave actually became a tsunami as everybody tried to add on to the seats uh, that were expected. So we did have we did have events in New York. We did have events in the suburbs, um, both in Long Island and in, in, in the Hudson That's Valley, um, which, which were real. Um, and for a variety of reasons, uh, move to move the, those areas in the Republican direction. So, uh, you, you know, it brings up the question, who do you believe? And uh, maybe Katie would want to weigh in on, you know, let's talk about George Santos. I mean, it's really the story of the year so far for all of us in local media. Um, I saw an interview, I think PBS did with Grant Lally, who is the um, editor-in-chief of the uh, North Shore Leader, who broke the story on the financial concerns about George Santos back in September that few uh, took note of. Um, and what, as opposed to like assigning blame, like whose fault was it? And we all, I think, can share. I was a news director uh, and helping, uh, you know, mount the coverage of of politics leading into November. And I didn't see it. Uh, I was not aware of the story. Uh, but what Grant said is that um, this has really energized local newsrooms. Katie, do you would you agree that the Santos story is like, oh my God, you know, we need to dig in deeper, and and it's a great lesson for young reporters. What do you think? Yeah, I think looking at what went wrong in that coverage, or even the lack of coverage about George Santos, it can kind of provide a a guidebook of what to do when you're reporting on someone. And obviously a lot of times you're writing these, look, I mean, and, and I'll actually take a step back. The reality is there's fewer reporters than ever. Yeah. Um, we're more overworked than ever. And there's a big gap I, I point out between the political consultants of which there are many of them and they all make a lot of money uh, to do, we could argue what, I don't know what they're doing a lot of the times. So you could argue that you know, and I know a lot of the people who worked on Robert Zimmerman's campaign kind of came out and said we were screaming this from the rooftops. They really didn't have the goods that the New York Times story eventually had. But I think going forward, it's really made me think anytime I write about really anyone, especially running for office, instead of just taking at their word what they say, I mean, it really doesn't take a long time to call up CUNY and say, can you just do a graduation check for this person? He says he graduated from Baruch. And this year, could you just like prove that to me? I've done it in the past for people. Uh, you could check it on military records, that kind of thing. Um, looking at his finances, clearly something was up. Um, so I think as a reporter, it, it made me think, how can I moving forward ensure that when people are speaking with me, that what they say is true, what they say about them, um, there are ways to prove it. You know, saying he had relatives who were Holocaust survivors, that might be a little bit more difficult to prove. He did claim that some of his employees died in the Pulse shooting. That wouldn't have been that hard to prove, looking at the list of people who died and checking it from there. Um, even just checking, you know, if you do an Alexis Nexa search on someone, you get their addresses, you get that kind of thing. You know, that maybe delves into more of like private investigative, like how much am I gonna dig into a candidate? But I think the college one, for me was the one that stood out because that is a very easy thing to confirm. It usually takes a few hours. Um, and that would have just been the tip of what his issues are. Um, but yeah, with that story going forward, I think I'd like to see how he actually will be as a congressperson. Um, 
you know, because it's a, it's a crazy story. It's almost a comically insane story about just how much he's lied about everything. Everything. Um, yeah. Everything. But at the end of the day, he has constituents who live in his district and who now, I mean, they voted for him, but they voted up for him thinking he was one thing, but yeah. how he actually will deliver for them as, as a, in Congress and what he'll actually do. Although the Nassau Republican Party has sort of indicated, I guess, yesterday, the day before, that he's not really welcome in the long term uh, if, he's, if he gets that point. I'm just going to, if I could jump jump in please, real quick, yeah, I just thought that, that Katie underscored a very, very important point, and that has to do with resources. Uh, and, you know, we know about, you know, the national media and, and, and how that's viewed and all that and followed. Uh, but, uh, you know, democracy really survives very often or not. Uh, on the uh, quality and the resources uh, to uh, devoted to local media uh, coverage, and this is a you know just an unfortunate incident, but one that really underscores the point that uh, that uh, the resources you know and the support has to be there uh, because you know you, you, even in the example you're saying, Katie, there, there's a lot of ways to have found out lots of information easily. However, if you've got a whole slew of congressional races and state Senate races and state assembly races and governor and Senate races, uh, it's very hard to kind of like keep tabs on all of them. Um, although this one, uh, you know, the fact that he, his mother died twice, I think was probably a tip also. Bernadette, what do you, you know, what do you take from the Santos story as a young reporter, as a professional who, um, you know, a pretty you're you're a dogged reporter. You've got a good reputation. What what do you take from the whole thing? I mean, number one, I mean, I think it's a combination of you have to check everything yourself. You have to do everything yourself in order to find out what is the truth and what is not. But in reality, like Katie said, and like what Lee said, if you don't have the time or the resources, sometimes that is difficult. So when you're reporting on certain races, and again, I mean, look. I covered Albany, I now cover City Hall, but I was covering um, these races and be they congressional, legislative, or the governor's race, you know, whatever you dip into it, you have to make sure you have to, you have your basic, your basics. So I do think that it's a really good lesson in, again, just not taking what this person says or what this candidate says at their word. Um, I also thought it was very curious that Lee mentioned the Nassau Republicans, but there was a story and I can't remember which outlet wrote it, but there was a story about how uh, House Republicans in leadership, it was a running joke that they knew that maybe Santos, everything that he was saying was not up to snuff. And I thought that that was very curious because, you know, if you had people that were supporting his candidacy or maybe not supporting it outright, but not saying anything, so it was a silent, they were condoning it. That's, it's fascinating that you would run a candidate who you you might be you might be running the risk of a couple of lies coming out. And by a couple, I mean, his entire resume is a lie. But again, I do think it's, it's just a good fact-checking lesson. You know, you said you're from here, okay. Like, let me just, it's, it's a good lesson for any young reporter. And, you know, as somebody who I did learn on the job up in Albany. My, I cut my teeth in Albany with The Post, with Spectrum News. And I learned a lot from the older reporters around me and from the sources, people like Lee, who I would call and ask, you know, this sounds weird, or is this, you know, is this new? How, how what's the precedence for this? Mm. You kind of learn on the job. And I've always found that with seasons, seasons reporters, and even Katie, you know, working in room nine with Katie, when I say, listen, I'm not really sure how I get at this. And they might say, oh, you know, look it up on here or you can utilize this tool. It's very helpful. And if you don't have people that kind of assist with leading the way with younger reporters or even in local newsrooms, then that trajectory of getting at the truth will be marred in the future. So it's, again, it's just so important to have that support system. I, I had a quick question for uh, Katie or Bernadette if, uh, and Lee, if you wanted to jump in, but the reporters might uh, have, the, have the best uh, perspective on it. Have you seen, you know, Santos, when he came and met some members of the media, he only spoke to selective organizations, obviously ones he thought would be friendly and they didn't necessarily end up being friendly like the post. Um, but, you know, we talked to right wing talk radio and was on Fox and got hammered there. And do, do you see any of this uh, translating into um, 
um, slowing down the impact of your access to newsmakers when you need, like we would love to sit down with a, with a newsmaker and, and have a, a big news conference. Remember the old Anthony Weiner news conference when he and his wife met the press about all his issues. I mean, you don't see that anymore, do you? I mean, it's there, there, do you fear as a reporter, as reporters that, that this Santos situation will cut off access for people who are in power because they don't want to expose themselves to a lot of questions? Well, I mean, I'll, one thing that I think of too, um, and, and it was a little bit there with when Anthony Weiner had that press conference, but look, I mean, now uh, politicians don't have to reveal some kind of truth to a reporter anymore. They can just tweet out a video. Um, we saw it with uh, former Mayor Bill de Blasio. He made his announcements about, I'm running for governor, I'm not running for governor, I'm running for Congress, I'm not running for Congress in sort of oddly shot videos that he just tweeted out. Um, so I think that is, and obviously you're always gonna go, and this is not new going to media people that you think are going to be sympathetic to you, or even just people you have a prior relationship to. It's sort of part of why, you know, one of the things of being a reporter is you wanna develop relationships with people, but you don't wanna to seem too chummy. It can be very complicated to how you balance that line. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, you know, maybe we see with George Santos, but it's certainly, I don't think it, I don't think it started with him. And I think the role of social media, also, I mean, not to sound too, um, I don't know, academic, I know you're the professor, uh, doctor, but you know, I think that has changed what we see, um, you know, 20 years ago, politicians and other people in power, they really only had one way to get their message across to the yeah. public, to their constituents, and it was through the media. Now, you know, we see with Mayor Eric Adams, he can post videos, he'll sometimes post videos of him out with people, and it, it's, a, it's a way to get his message out without facing any kind of questions from, from people who have those questions for him. Right, I mean, I also think, so for example, with covering former Governor Andrew Cuomo, maybe we would be, have an opportunity before the pandemic to ask him questions at a handful of events. I remember, I remember I could count on one hand one year. I was like, I think there was like maybe 10 maximum events where we could ask him questions. But I've always found though that you can get your stories in other ways. If a principal won't talk to you because either they don't like your outlet or they, you know, they want a softer landing story, that's fine. You know, there's always a way around it. And there's also people that are interested parties. So that might leak you information or just say, hey, you know, you should you should take a look at this. Or again, if you call somebody that's well-versed or a, a, a watcher of the news and of these, the happenings, there's always a way to get your story, but it is, as Katie said, if if a certain politician wants to put out their message via social media, that's fine. They can do that. But it's also like, well, who's watching? The, the mayor of New York City, of course, has a large following. But if you're, I hate to say a random assembly person that was just elected, you do need the media and you do need to be telling the truth. You're a George Santos. You're a first term congressman. You ran once and lost. And now you're the biggest news story of the cycle. So, you know, you do need to watch and you do have to have, cons there are consequences. And I think with the Santos story, it has shown that there are consequences to lying, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. Obviously. Yeah, that seat in Sally would, would be not surprising where that seat was gonna flip back to the Democrats anyway. Uh, it's a seat that Santos won by eight points. Uh, two years earlier, Joe Biden won that district by 10 points. Um, so this is one of those like the Hudson Valley, which was, you know, a surprising flip. Um, but, uh, you know, in the polling area, I mean, it's, it's you know, the, 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 it's the media's job, unfortunately, to be a gatekeeper to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, in the, in the case of the point I was talking about, uh, reveal who the sponsorship is of the poll and what their track record is. And uh, because a lot of what was going on was just partisan. Uh, Tim, you may not be aware that I just signed a contract to be center fielder for the New York Yankees. Uh, I, 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 that should be part of my resume going forward. <laughs> the memes uh, related to uh, to George Santos have been really entertaining. Uh, you know, <laughs> sitting on the bench with Messi winning the World <laughs> Cup and things like that. You know, it's it it is comical, but it's a great lesson, and I really do. I I like to find the positive in everything, and I did love that quote about how it's going to energize newsrooms. It's going to make us want to be skeptical, but we're going to have to be skeptical about. I think we all share the blame. I don't mean you, but I mean the Republican Party, the Zimmerman campaign. Uh, we all could have done better, and I think it's a great lesson, and that's 
you know, as long as we can learn from that, that would be awesome. Um, a topic that I had on my list, though, though nobody asked, was uh, <laughs> was crime and bail reform, which I know you've all actually ha have had on your list. Um, you know, we're, we have the state of the state today, uh, and uh, we'll hear from Governor Hochul, and, and the idea is she'll probably address crime and, mm. you know, where we are. I want to ask each of you how you think um, bail reform may play out. Will it, there be reform to bail reform? Uh, and, and you know, what is the expectation from a public perception point of view? Is, is crime, is what's going on from a crime point of view in New York City a narrative? And is it scaring people in the sub? There's a lot of tentacles to this question, so I apologize. Is it keeping people like me away from the city? Uh, is it making us all want to love remote work from Jersey and Long Island and the Hudson Valley? Um, you know, there's a lot to it, but it's a really dramatic time for New York City to, to tackle a couple of these things. So let me start with you, Bernadette. Uh, where do you think um, this issue of crime and then bail reform uh, is, is, is going this year? And I noticed you contributed to a story, I guess it ran either over the weekend or the other day about uh, grocery chains and others putting together a coalition to try and um, to try and uh, get a little bit more protection in the bail reform arena for um, these shoplifting recidivists. The, so, I mean, I'm sorry that there's so much to that question, but it's a big topic. Sure. No, I mean, number one, I think as long as the mayor of the city of New York continues to hold press conferences on crime and I'm not saying that as if, you know, he's talking about crime because that's just what he wants his his agenda to be. No, I mean, look, like the NYPD has been very active over the past year. So is the mayor. They've been active in the areas such as homelessness and mental illness, in addition to, like you just said, with retail theft and shoplifting. And bail reform since 2019 has been has been, it's it's not quite the slogan for everything that's wrong with, um, I guess, crime in New York, but it's something that people in law enforcement, Republicans, and even Democrats, again, like Mayor Eric Adams, or or even, you know, other Democrats, like, say, for example, Inez Dickens up in Harlem, she's a steadfast Democrat, has been for years, who are saying, listen, something has to be done because our criminal justice system just isn't working. and. There's a whole lot of components, but I think even Governor Kathy Hochul, before today's the 10th, before the new year, she tried to add in or start a conversation with the legislature to um, to put in more tweaks to the law itself. And it's it's a very complicated conversation, too, because it's, you know, the mayor talks about adding in this thing called judicial discretion, allowing judges to have more of a say, I suppose, when it comes to uh, setting bail for somebody. But then there's also issues like repeat offenders and recidivist crimes. The legislature did make changes last year, but people in law enforcement or the mayor say, hey, it's not enough. On retail theft, so that's interesting. I spoke to um, an owner of Three Food Towns in Queens yesterday who was telling me, listen, I hired a private security guard for at least one of my grocery stores because I have some items like say Red Bulls, baby formula, shrimp, meat, et cetera, that just are continuously coming off the shelves and it's costing, it's costing the business. And he said, listen, it could be put us in danger of even operating. And the reason why he thinks that either cops are not responding that quickly or, you know, it just continues to happen is because there is a supposed lack of con uh, consequences, right? I think just the way that the law works right now is retail theft under a certain uh, cost, I guess. I believe it's, I, I'm not even going to give you the exact, mm -hmm. but but my point is under a certain amount, under a certain financial price tag, um, it there's, there's little to no consequences if a perp is booked, they just get an appearance ticket and they can go back out into the streets. So this one owner I was speaking to said, listen, I the, the amount of shoplifters we catch is at least two a day, and that's how many we catch. So you have a bunch of people that are saying, listen, this is a, impacting our livelihood. At least, you know, help us, help small business, because we are the backbone of the city. So I think going back to the state of the state with Governor Kathy Hochul and what her big plan is for crime, a lot of it does rest on her shoulders, and it also rests on cooperation with the legislature. And whether she does it 
um, by shoving some sort of fix in the budget, which she has all the power in the budget, um, and the legislature has has proven themselves to be particularly unfriendly within the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see. So she has the support in the mayor. She has support in other areas, but she has to find that support to to make it happen. Otherwise, people are going to totally lose their minds. Lee or Katie on uh, on crime and where we're going with bail reform. And Katie, maybe I'll quick ask you because you know is the, the mayor does events where he speaks about crime. He wants to. He wants to reframe the narrative that's out there where people in the suburbs are scared of coming in and working in the in the city. Is that um, is that reality is um, not that part reality, but is it reality that he, uh, you know, where Adams is coming from that that police are doing their job to the extent that they need to be. I think it's sort of a complicated thing because I know Mayor Adams has To some people um, over exaggerated the crime fear, but then gets mad when crime is on the cover of tabloids. So it is um, this double thing where he he really amps up this idea of crime and then obviously doesn't always like some of the coverage of it. Um, as for, you know, I mean, look, I saw a stat that there's uh, tourists coming into the, the city's airports are at higher than pre-COVID numbers. Um, and, you know, we can look at the commuter rail lines and look at um, people coming in. I mean, if you, if you look at some of the Long Island Railroad and Metro North numbers, weekend numbers are actually higher than pre-COVID numbers. So I think maybe there's a reluctance for people to go back to their offices. They enjoy working from home, but they're not as reluctant to go out to the city on the weekends for social engagements. And look, looking at crime, obviously there's the, looking at the raw numbers, um, what's up and what's down. Uh, COVID was a really destabilizing factor across the world and obviously in New York City. So you, you take into the, you know, I think it'll take time to, to rebalance that out, although there were some crime numbers going up pre-COVID. Um, but also there is that perception. And for the media, you know, people say, oh, the media um, blows crime out of proportion. There is that balance because you want to report what's going on. You don't want to do it recklessly. You don't want to do it without putting things into context. But we also have an obligation to, if someone gets murdered, we have an obligation to cover that. Um, whereas Eric Adams, I know he's he's done a lot of initiatives, um, putting more police officers in subways. Around this time last year, he's, he brought back what was known as the anti-crime street unit um, to, to target certain, you know, you can almost kind of guess where some of the, the major crimes will happen. As for people's perception and fear, I'm, I, I mean, I know it's been years where I think a lot of people for years in the suburbs, there is that stereotype of the suburban person afraid of the city. You know, it seems like a time-honored tradition for people from certain suburbs to be so scared of New York City, or maybe it was much safer and better and greater when they lived there before they moved out to the suburbs. That seems to be the sort of New York uh, tri-state uh, tradition. But whereas, you know, there is that true perception of crime, and I think things will improve as, um, as we kind of hopefully move further away from the pandemic. Yeah, I, I you, just, ahead, just add, add into that. I, I find it interesting how much Governor Hochul is making of crime, uh, you know, in terms of her, you know, uh, wanting to be perceived as someone who is uh, on the front line of this uh, when during the election, uh, you know, the Democrats kind of let the crime issue get away from them. And I think what happened in the suburbs we we're talking about in the beginning and in the Hudson Valley was that the crime message became identified as well, first of all, it's the second highest message, second highest issue following inflation. Uh, but uh, it became a part of the rally cry of the Republicans, uh, whereas the Democrats didn't identify rising crime, like, for example, with gun control. Uh, and I assume if you were a Democrat and people talk about crime, they would want people to think about gun control rather than you know each individual uh, incident. Uh, but uh, former Congressman Zeldin obviously had the crime literally at his own doorstep um, during the campaign. And uh, I think the Democrats really let that one go. And I think Kathy Hochul is in the business right now of trying to plug that up because uh, it was not part of the Democrats arsenal during the campaign. This, uh, and they really left a huge growing issue to the Republicans. Um, not the sexiest of issues, but housing and transportation, I think, are really two critical topics that may uh, play in the headlines uh, over the course of the, the year. You talk about people remaining in the suburbs and a lack of housing and the, the strain on the system in, in New York City. Um, each, 
you want to tackle first housing? Um, anybody? Uh, Katie, is there a concern um, yeah. about housing, obviously? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge concern about housing, and not just in New York City, but uh, throughout New York State. Um, and I know Kathy Ho Governor Hochul's State of the State today, will, we've been told we'll address partly that. Uh, Mayor Adams has tried to address it. There's just a real need for more housing. And even, you know, building up density on Long Island, thinking of um, how fast and efficient Long Island Railroad is. I know there's been a push from some people to build more, uh, to build denser housing along the railroad, um, maybe getting into some issues there locally of, of people who, you know, don't want even a six-story building in their neighborhood or their village. Um, but again, there's there's a real need for housing. Uh, Mayor Adams yesterday talked about um, some plans and some recommendations that his administration had to turn office buildings into residential, um, which is actually can be very complicated if you imagine like an office building, how there's windows along this, the center, you know, but there's in the center, it's just a big thing, unless you're gonna all live in a big loft. So that is, you know, that is the biggest issue, the rising rents. If you look to see how much it is to rent a one bedroom apartment in really any part of the city, um, the numbers are out, it's insane. So when you look at how much, how much money uh, it takes just to live, you know, to just live in a studio apartment, there's, there's clearly a need for more housing. Right. Right. No, exactly. I mean, the cost of living, be it housing, be it grocery shopping, gas prices, et cetera, everything has gone up within the past year. And it's also unfortunate that this has happened right after the coronavirus pandemic, when, you know, people either lost jobs or maybe they moved out of their apartment in the city, or actually maybe they signed an apartment in the city where they got a COVID deal. I know a bunch of my friends did, and it looked awesome. And then a year later, their rent was raised by a thousand dollars. And that's just something that, you know, it's, it's a margin of people can't afford that, whether you're working, but if you're working and have a job, that's one thing. But if you are a mother, you're a single mom, you have three kids and you're working two jobs and you're trying to stay in you know, your affordable housing unit, like how is that even possible? So it's something that the mayor has been very keen on. Um, he's made, as Katie said, a couple announcements. Yesterday, his big thing was something that he campaigned on, converting office space into residential housing. That's been a really big issue just because of the way that the city's regulations and laws work. You can't convert certain buildings that were built after a certain year and it's very complicated and they also need assistance from the state to speed up that process it would definitely be really helpful also it would be helpful to the business community um because a lot of these developers or people who own these buildings in midtown manhattan or the financial district places where used to used to have office workers going in five days a week it was so busy now you have people that are either working fully remote or hybrid and these people are also wondering, well, what the heck do we do with these buildings? So it's also a way to assist the economy and uh, you know the business community and what they're going to do with these these buildings. So we'll see. Uh, Lee, anything on housing? I'm going to no, no. Just uh, I think both uh, Katie and Bird, you know, touched upon this. You know, this is sort of part partially uh, an aftermath of COVID, uh, but clearly particularly in downtown Manhattan, there's going to be a need to make it more residential because it's not going to survive commercially. And but yet, uh, uh, just as a, you know, from a distance on this, both of you alluded to the, uh, to the, uh, this is not just a quick, uh, a coat of paint and uh, making a, a swinging door go one way in the residential this is a much more complicated, uh, which I assumed I hadn't really thought about, but uh, it makes all the sense in the world, given uh, the potential regulations, and it's not a quick fix. Um, you know, the the thing that I that I always think about when it comes to um, to what will happen post COVID is, you know, what happened post nine eleven to New York City. It was this amazing transformation uh, oh. of Lower Manhattan uh, that you couldn't ha not have even imagined in the in the months and the years after nine eleven. But there is this. You know, it's this incredible and wonderful space and, you know, looks different um, from a nostalgia point of view. I, I did love what it was like back then, but it, you know, what New York City did post 9-11 to overcome and to rebuild 
you know, you wonder whether we have to wait another five or seven years before we could really see the fruits of what all of these this planning will be. And the idea of transportation uh, and these projects that some have been put in place and some that are, uh, you know, these new hubs, uh, Katy and Burn and places like the Bronx uh, and Queens uh, that will attempt to make it easier for commuters coming from the north um, into Grand Central or Long Island, maybe even into Grand Central. I mean, we're, we're in 10 years, we could be looking at a really different looking New York City and way the whole metropolitan area is connected. Or do you get a sense that that's a, a way we're going? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, because like you said, there's a lot of development coming to parts of the city that hadn't seen it before. And that is tied to transportation, um, the east side access, uh, the connectivity with the Long Island Railroad, I think there will be, um, and it, they just need it. You know, I know that there's concern, and I, I do believe Governor, Governor Hochul will talk about it today, uh, the number of people leaving New York, right, for a number of reasons, higher, you know, taxes, they want to live somewhere else, maybe they just want to go where it's warm, um, they don't want to get stuck in a snowstorm. There's a lot of reasons for people's migrations that that aren't just because of COVID or taxes, but, you um, what will be done there but even with that there, there are plenty of people still coming to new york city to new york state and they have to live somewhere and they need to have livable places to, to, to be they need to have good transportation and you know you brought up transportation that's the other concern um the mta and its financial stream you know it needs more money it needs sure. uh even before the ridership dip because of covid it needed money then so that's the other concern Burn anything on uh, on transportation? You know, the, Kathy Hochul, she only won by a few percentage points. A small, you know, the smallest margin of victory for a Democrat in in, in, in a in a long time. And um, you know, you wonder whether she's going to be the governor of upstate and not necessarily the governor of uh, you know the New York metropolitan area. And there are concerns for, in the suburban communities down here that there may there may they may get some short shrift because they don't have the influence. You know, not even, you know, they, they're right. not, they don't have the influence they used to have. Yeah. Right, go, right. Go, go ahead, Bernie. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, covering the legislature, right, you know, you do have the majority of, you, you have a lot of legislators that represent upstate, but the power, be it yeah. in perception or, you know, just look at the financial power of Wall Street, it comes from New York City. And so there is, I mean, it's just, it's a historic, I, I don't want to say grudge, but it's a historic um, perception that upstaters just do think that they're shortchanged because all of the power and the money and come from New York, even though, of course, Albany is where New York City might as well just be a, a small, like Binghamton or Syracuse, because you do go there to lobby for laws to get changed and money, et cetera. But um, you know, Kathy Hochul, Kathy Hochul could could win some support by focusing on suburban transportation. I mean, you know, you go up to some of these upstate communities, you can't get around if you don't have a car. And a lot of people who are impoverished don't have cars and they're walking, you know, and they're walking to a dollar store. So it's like if she does focus on some of these things that can be fixed, be it the Hudson Valley, which again is not that far from New York City, she could she could see some wins. But in terms of New York City, I mean congestion pricing is something that's on the table. It's very controversial. It's just, you know, whether it gets pushed back even further or not because of COVID, because people, you know, the, the conversation around it isn't there yet. Um, it is important. I mean, when I go to the subway and I'm late or, you know, a, a, a train doesn't come, it's annoying. And it makes you think, well, you know what, what's my alternative? Mm -hmm. And when people are thinking, what's my alternative to something that should work, uh, that's a real big problem for city officials and state officials. But Bernadette, um, you're, you're an equestrian, so you just have a horse uh, I know. in your apartment. And Central you can, Park is yeah, right here. Yeah. I was just um, going to say, Kim, real quick, that the uh, what's, what's interesting when you talk about the suburbs and how they became much more Republican. I mean, the Democratic Party right now doesn't have a real strong footprint in the suburbs. Uh, if you, you mentioned that Governor Hochul's from upstate, uh, obviously the mayor of, uh, of New York City is from New York City. Uh, the Attorney General is, is a New York City person. I mean, the Democratic Party sort of, uh, you know, left alone a, a, an area where 
um, you know, there's so many votes and, uh, and potential swing voters uh, are higher in the suburbs and therefore, you know, they really were missed out. So the whole, uh, to your point, Katie, on the state of the state, I mean, this is a, this is a political document, surprise, surprise, and it's going to have a, you know, a much more uh, non-city, not that the city's going to take second shrift, but, but back, I, I think it's going to have a much more non-city focus because, you know, they were missing, uh, she didn't get the upstate votes, an upstater might have gotten, and she didn't get the downstate votes because they didn't have the footprint there. So I'm going to try and squeeze in a, a lot in the next 10 minutes. We'll, we'll give it back to Jackie in a few. I'm going to give you a heads up on a couple of things I'm going to look for. Uh, I'm going to at some point ask uh, if I can get it in key people that you're going to keep your eye, that you're keeping your eye on. Um, I'm, I'm also going to ask for some advice uh, from all of you. Uh, on how to coach consumers on consuming the news. Um, what advice would you give to people who are news consumers as uh, professionals uh, that would make them better um, at, at consuming the news? Um, so those two, uh, that's a preview of two questions coming up. Um, but I wanted to ask one that was in the chat box, which is it give, if, you were, if resources weren't an issue or time or assignments weren't an issue, what would you go after? Like, what could what could you assign yourself as a story that you'd like to that you'd like to go after? You may have already um, you know volunteered it with either casinos or the relationship between governor and mayor. But is there something you that really piques your curiosity that you don't have time on? Um, I'll just say, I mean, there's so much. Um, <laughs> low, I mean, low level sounds like it's bad, but, but um, like, like it's not worth going after, but there's so much like lower level corruption that could eventually lead to, to something bigger, but we can't just report on everything. Um, you know, people come to us with complaints that could maybe show a pattern of, of whatever, you know, in, in a major city agency, but there's just only so much um, that I can go after, even within the courts and stuff like that. But but those things can be so complicated and time consuming. So if, if I had, you know, all the time in the world and 40 hours in a day that's what i might want to look and that's at. what the city does so well katie Thank that's you. why i would um you know the influence on politicians and friends and you know relationships those are things that and sometimes katie you know those stories take a lot of time to to click together so so that that you know that's great i completely get that i'll, I'll throw a um curveball bernadette maybe is is all the COVID money that that was out there for the past couple of years, we know on the federal level there was a lot of um, there, there there were a lot of shady deals that were done, and the, the federal government has uh, done its best. But there's no way you're ever going to really investigate that. Is there COVID stories to be told still about all that money that was out there? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the Department of Labor um, there was just this report that all of this money associated with. I think it was insurance, um, just back payments, et cetera, was lost. And the Department of Labor just money went out to people. And I, I can't remember the figure, but it was a mammoth figure. And if you could just track where all of it went and get it back, I mean, look, we have a deficit on the state and the and the city and the federal level. I mean, it's not just free money. So yeah, that, but then also um Gov governor kathy hochel and um some of her donors uh with with medical medical equipment uh throughout the pandemic you know buying medical equipment that was sky high prices and then it was never delivered um what happened to all the covid contracts with the city and the state and a lot of i mean at least with on the state end what i was reporting on at the time and then a little bit dipping into the city people would just you would just submit uh like i guess numbers there's not even contracts associated with some the purchase orders sorry they're not even contracts associated with what was bought so it's like pulling back the onion and getting it where all that money went i think would be fascinating but then just really quickly i think for a young reporter one thing that would be totally worthwhile covering is stuff like school boards um city council meetings uh or just i mean local on the local end, right? Like you wanna know why your water bill is so much higher? Go figure out what the what the local elected officials are talking about. I think that's something that has been lost with local news and is just, you know, it it makes an impact with, with consumers and, you know, it's unfortunate that we don't have time. 
Lee, can I ask you, uh, anybody you're focusing on in the in the current year, who, what personalities um, are you keeping an eye on this year uh, in New York State for news? Uh, uh, the governor, uh, and as she tries to expand her reach into different parts of the state and how she's going to politically try to do that starting today uh, with, with the state of the state. And I think also, you know, I think uh, it's somewhat of a national issue, but, you know, these first time congressional uh, Republicans who have just elected uh, in areas that Biden carried those districts, what are they going to do with the more extreme D.C. Republican Party uh, and how are they going to come back? Uh, to try to hold on to their seats, uh, given that self-preservation is such a big deal, uh, you know, how are they going to try to maintain their their uh, their incumbency, uh, having only been one-term Congress people uh, coming down the road, and and with a party that's really not not a New York-focused Republican party right now, as far as Washington is concerned. So it'll be interesting to see how the the Wallers and the Molineros. I mean, the Santos is a different case. But there's some, you know, legitimate congressmen who have got to find a way to, you know, appeal to moderate voters um, in their districts that are not in love with what's going on with the, uh, with the, um, you know, what we saw with the speaker getting selected and the, and the more extreme elements of the Republican Party in Washington. So I think I've been watching a lot of those Congress people and how they kind of try to put a little distance between that, uh, a little bit New York facing on them. Katie. Um... Any people you're keeping an eye on? Obviously, the man that works in the building that you're sitting in, Eric Adams. Yeah, the mayor, and you know, especially his relationship with the council and how that'll continue to play out. Um, but I guess you know the other part of your question was how advice for consumers, news consumers. I mean, I think it's easier than ever now with so many publications have morning newsletters. Um, you know, my mine does, but we mostly share our stories. But I think you know back in the day in, in what people might consider the glory days of journalism, you had to read like five newspapers to know what was going on. I think now there's this effort to combine things to let you know what's going on. So I, you know, I suggest that people look like get a Google news reader. We have, that's the benefit of the internet, right? There are ways to read a lot of things and, and see what the top stories are. Um, that isn't just Twitter. Cause that also is a, a resource for seeing what the big stories are, but that, that is it. And, you know, for all the doom and gloom about the death of local news or whatever it is, there are still a lot of local publications that do need a lot of support, whether it's financially or just with clicks and reading it. So, um, but, but what about this idea of paid sites or, um, you know, just quick, we only have a couple of minutes, yeah. but a site like the city, which is asking people to, you know, you're not-for-profit asking people to uh, help support, help support the news. That is a new wave of journalism. Yeah, you know, it's a nonprofit model. We don't have a paywall. Places have paywalls, but look, you have to pay for the news. You know, with the ad model sort of um, collapsing, um, people used to pay for newspapers 30 years ago. Um, I see friends complain about, oh, a paywall on certain stories. And it's like, you know, you, you, you have to get paid at your job. I have to get paid at mine. So there's a lot of ways to pay for it, um, whether it is a paywall and a subscription model or whether it is a nonprofit model where you're getting grants and getting um, monthly subscriptions. But, you know, news has to be, you know, you have to pay for it somehow. Um, so we do urge, you know, to support and subscribe to your local newspaper um, and, and and find other ways to support. Bern, who are you watching? And then some advice for consumers of news. Yeah, I mean, I'm watching the mayor and I'm watching the new people that he has put in to replace a slew of, of key positions, right? Like his chief of staff, who is a close friend, confidant, just left. He's got a, a brand new host of deputy mayors, also has still a bunch of vacancies throughout the administration. Um, also the NYPD, right? That also just had a shake up. What's gonna happen with um, police commissioner Kichant Sewell, who has, you know, the mayor of course selected her and first female uh, NYPD commissioner. Um, you know, what what struggles are, is she going to have to overcome, especially given the past couple of years? Um, and then it, for advice, yeah, I mean, look like, it's don't just read the Sunday New York Times. Beat reporters are reporting on the crumbs that come into you know large investigations. Um, you have to read, you know, you got to read the Times, you've got to read the Post, obviously, but you've got to read these other outlets like Katie's, The City. I mean, that are have time to do investigative pieces. I mean, I think it's also just a product of being well-rounded. You can just watch one show 
um, it just, it helps with your perspective. It's like talking to a bunch of people or having a bunch of friends and like having a bunch of hobbies. Like you end up not being as extreme or polarized as maybe you came into a situation. You know what I mean? I'm Irish, I'm hot-headed. Like sometimes I come in thinking one thing and then, you know, you hear other people's perspectives and it tones it down and you realize, hey, you know, I can take a step back and see that there's more sides. So that's literally what the internet and buying newspapers, et cetera, reading online offers. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Um, it is time to switch out this panel. My thanks to Katie Honan, to Bernadette Hogan, to Lee Marengoff, um, three terrific uh, professionals. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your good thoughts. And uh, Jackie, back to you. The Fair Media Council is a 501c3 nonprofit organization advocating for quality news and working to create a media-savvy society. For more information about the Fair Media Council and upcoming Fast Chat shows, check out fairmediacouncil.org. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.